And Lord, we just pray that uh, you would indeed uh, meet us here. Remove from us those things that would distract us from hearing your word and prepare our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a difficult world we live in. I know that's probably a shocker to some of you. Actually, I was thinking about finding some statistics or some heart-wrenching story, but I hate hearing heart-wrenching stories because I do that in my office far too often. But I figure that there's a fair bet that you can just look at your own life and look at the lives of your near ones, and you can also figure out for yourself that life is tough. Paul wrote the book of Philippians to address our fears in this world that just constantly plague us. Anybody with me on this? Am I all by myself? Paul wrote his letter to to Philippians because he wanted to remind us over and over and over Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Straight through this short letter to the Philippians, Paul weaves his message around the sufferings and the opposition that are just normal experiences of the Christian life. Stephen Curtis Chapman, popular Christian musician, put this idea this way. He said, people say this world's a jungle. And sometimes I must admit, I'd be scared to death if I did not know who was king of it. But the truth is God created this whole world with his own hand. So everything is under his command. The Lord of the gentle breeze is the Lord of the rough and tumble. And he is the king of the jungle. You will search the Bible in vain, as Pastor Benji reminded us this morning, to find a place where it is not clearly asserted or at least implied that God is sovereign King over all. Even in, perhaps especially in, our sufferings. Now, as most of you know, I'm sure the occasion of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi was that he had received a gift while he was suffering from the Philippians, and he wanted simply to say thank you for their gift. He used this thank you note to press into their hearts and minds several key ideas that flow from this chief idea, Jesus Christ is Lord. I put it this way, because Jesus is Lord, rejoice, pressing on with one mind together as you face struggles and oppositions while sharing the good news. Now each clause in this sentence reflects a big idea, a major theme, a key component of Paul's letter. But I also wrote a shorter version because it kind of rolls off the tongue a little easier. Jesus is Lord. Press on with one mind as you rejoice in the good news. So tonight, as we introduce the book of Philippians, uh, over the next 13 weeks, we'll go passage by passage and look and see what Paul has to say. But tonight, I just want to look at these 
major themes so that we could understand what we are getting into. As I said a moment ago, the most important theme in the book is Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, in Philippians, there are more direct and indirect statements of the fact that Jesus is Lord than any other theme in the book. Paul makes it perfectly clear. He is completely surrendered to Christ. Paul, in fact, directly mentions Jesus is Lord in one form or another 15 times. Nine of those times, Paul describes what the Philippians are to do in the Lord. They are to be confident in the Lord. They are to hope in the Lord, to trust in the Lord, to receive Epaphroditus in the Lord. They are to stand firm in the Lord, agree in the Lord. And three times, he commands them to rejoice in the Lord. By the way, in those three times, it always implies or involves suffering and opposition. Our whole life, according to Paul, is to be lived in light of the fact that there is a God and I am not Him. Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul clearly asserts Jesus' Lordship throughout every chapter and almost every single major section of the book. More important even than that, in my opinion, is the fact that it is just flat assumed. When you look at his commands, when you look at the promises that God gives us through Paul's, it is assumed, it is the foundation, the bedrock place where it rests that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I'm telling you, once you start reading Philippians with an eye to seeing where Jesus Christ is Lord, it will change how you view the whole book. It will change how, perhaps, you view your life. All of our attitudes, all of our actions, all of our thoughts, words, deeds are to be done in light of the fact that Jesus is the one with whom we have to do. There is no sin that is not first and foremost an offense against Jesus who is Lord. There is no act of righteousness that is not first and foremost an act of obedience to His glory. Paul puts it very clearly elsewhere when he says, whether you eat or whether you drink, do whatever you do to the glory of God. Furthermore, I believe now, having looked at Philippians, having read through it nearly a hundred times in the last couple of months, that when Paul uses the title Christ, when Paul puts Christ next to Jesus, or uses it just on its own, Paul is intentionally declaring, or at least presuming, the Lordship of Jesus. You see, Christ means anointed one. There are several Christs or Messiahs in the Old Testament. But it's a person who is appointed to a very specific task. Now, Jesus is the Christ. He is the one who is appointed to the task by the Father. The task of being God the Father's right-hand man, so to speak. 
It may not always be at the very forefront of what Paul is thinking when he uses the term, but it is clearly, when he says Christ, he wants you to remember Jesus Christ is Lord. So as you read Christ, in your heart, translate or expand the idea to be something like the one, capital O, one, appointed by God the Father to be Lord of all. And this, I think, will give you a relatively accurate view of what Paul is trying to communicate to you and me. Now, while we're on the topic of Jesus' lordship, the thing that jumps out of me is that the most powerful expression of Jesus' lordship in Philippians is tied directly to the most direct or the most explicit explication of Jesus' humility. We find it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11. through 11. Paul commands us, he says, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, I can't wait. We're going to spend time in this passage and actually all the passages we're looking at tonight. But this is marvelous. The humility of Christ is tied directly to the direct statement that every single man, woman, and child is going to bow the knee to Jesus. Some of us will be happy to do it. Others will not. But we see here why Jesus humbled himself. And boy, this is going to be, this is going to be a, a big sermon. Might be here for a while. But I want you to notice why Jesus, the reason Jesus humbled himself. Therefore, the purpose, excuse me, the purpose why Jesus humbled himself. God has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is every, above every other name. How, how do you say more clearly that Jesus Christ is Lord in that? Well, except with what follows immediately thereafter. Every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But what, another thing that really jumps out here in this passage is verse 5. Note Paul's description of Christ's humility beginning in verse 5. It says that Jesus Christ was in the form of God. Now, what this means is that all the necessary attributes that are true of God, His eternality, His spirituality, His infinity, and His self-existence, all those necessary attributes of God the Father are also true of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, now known as Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, who is Lord of all. 
Christ Jesus was in fact already equal with God. There is no debate about that. But at the incarnation, Jesus Christ mysteriously, I I don't understand it, I don't comprehend it, Jesus Christ mysteriously added to himself the role of servant. The servant who died for his beloved. Again, every aspect of this letter is colored. I would say dominated by the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I'm spending time on that because you have to understand that everything that follows is controlled by this reality. Jesus Christ is Lord. It is not everywhere stated, but as I said before, it is everywhere assumed. Every response by every person for good or for ill is under Christ's Lordship. And the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, a man named Abraham Kuyper, said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. There is no aspect of your life, there is no aspect of my life in which Jesus Christ is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now the rest of the themes that we are going to come into tonight and the other themes that will bounce around over the next 13 weeks all relate more or less directly to this foundational reality as we will clearly see. Firstly, beginning with Jesus Christ is Lord, therefore strive. Because Jesus Christ is Lord, because there is one who rules over all, there are attitudes and actions which you and I must have, must do. And this indeed, I think, is the second most prevalent theme I found in Paul's letter, is what I'm calling strive. Now, Paul commands God's people to work out their salvation in chapter 2, verse 15. He calls us to press on in chapter 3, verse 14. He doesn't always use the word strive. But this idea of swimming against the current is living the Christian life is not a spectator sport. Now, unfortunately, one characteristic sin of this American culture is pacifism. We see it every night. Or we see it it's pacifism. You just let the world come to you. Entertain me. This is not how the Christian is supposed to live. If there have been ages in the church where the church was too zealous, the zeal, when wrong, was misguided. But the zeal itself is a sign of life. If there was a time when Christians fought too hard about things that were not important, it was not the fighting that was wrong, it was the purpose of their fighting. In this sin-sick world, we must fight. We must strive. We must press on. We must, we must exert. 
I think this is exactly what Jesus means in Matthew chapter 11 when he's talking about John the Baptist and say the violent must take the kingdom of heaven by force. What is he getting at there? Well, I think part of what he's getting at is that my sin, the world that I live in, and the, real, the very real Satan are trying to fight against me and defeat me. And therefore, I must fight, I must strive, I must press on, push forward to keep my heart and mind seeking the kingdom of God before anything and everything else. It's hard. Because, I don't know about you guys, but I get to the end of the day and I'm tired. And I just want to check out. Am I all alone in that? Anybody with me on that? We must fight to keep our hearts and minds in line with the kingdom of God. Why? Because Jesus Christ is Lord. Now we have much to learn from our forebears, and especially from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Strive. Press on. Work out your salvation. Don't make theological excuses, by the way. Some of you will say, well, grace, grace, grace. Yes, grace. Absolutely grace. But grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. And in the face of opposition and suffering, Paul does not say, woe is me. Paul says, let's get going. And he does this, firstly, in Philippians 1, 12-14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now listen, we're going to get to understanding how can we be refreshed? Do we have to fight all the time? Do we have to strive all the time? We'll get to that. I'm not saying you can't ever just relax. We need to do that, especially in the world we live in. But we must strive forward through our struggles, like Job and Elijah before him. Paul exhorts us to this because Jesus is Lord of our struggles and He brings good beyond our little lives so that He is glorified, so that we, His people, will be ultimately rejoiced and so that His kingdom will grow. Jesus Christ ultimately is Lord of all. And because this is so, there is nothing on earth worth giving our ultimate effort to achieve. There is nothing even ultimately to fear. Because we only have to live for an audience of one. So strive to be in Him. So strive to please Him above everything else. And in your striving, here comes the first qualification, we must remember that we are striving together for the same goal. We're not striving against each other. The big idea continues. Jesus Christ is Lord, therefore strive united with one mind. In this letter, Paul takes a lot of time to explain to the Philippians by example and by exhortation to strive together 
for the good of the church and the growth of his kingdom. Just about every single passage of this letter breathes this atmosphere. This idea that we are to be united. This idea that we are to have one mind in the good news. Because Christ is Lord over me, and because Christ is Lord over you, we have the same Lord, and therefore we're going in the same direction. So our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength is to be given for a common cause. Now, how you do that is going to look differently than how I do that. But we see this in each other, and when we are united with Christ, we will see, praise Jesus. Because if I had to take care of fourth graders like Michelle Winger, oh my goodness, I'd pull what remaining hair I have out. If I had to sing like Chet or Chet, you would pull your hair out. <laughs> Along these ideas of being united in of the same mind, Paul uses this idea of imitate. And, and he at least implies it seven times in chapters 1 through 3. And then towards the end of chapter 3 and then in chapter 4, Paul directly commands the Philippians imitate me, but don't imitate those who are imposters, who are walking as enemies of the cross. And in, in, in view of this, Paul gives several examples of this unity and this one-mindedness throughout. Of course, the primary example throughout Philippians is Paul himself. But Paul uses directly in the second half of chapter 2, he goes into details and is very specific about the christ like attitudes and actions of two of his close friends, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And if we are to live like Christ, we would do well to imitate the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. But in one passage in particular, Paul is explicit in his command. He says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Above all, Christ is the example we are to imitate. And Paul comes back to Jesus as Lord over and over again. If you and I individually live like Christ, we seek, because we won't do it perfectly, right? If we are seeking individually to live our lives as close to Christ as possible, then we will find that we are living in unity with each other. And where we find ourselves rubbing, anybody with me on that? Anybody know any Christians that rub them a little bit? No, never mind, not here. But, you know, just perchance, if it ever happened, where this happens, what we will find is we are being that iron that sharpens one another. We are being that spur that spurs us on to love and good works. But in this passage, and we will spend time talking about this, note, it is 
participation in the Spirit, God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that is absolutely central to living this Christ-likeness that Paul commands. And when you and you and I are living by the Spirit, we are striving with our brothers and sisters instead of against our brothers and sisters in such a way that those who are near us will not be able to deny our family resemblance to Jesus. Because they will know us by our love. Now, what this looks like in light of the fact that Bible-believing and Christ-honoring Christians do, in fact, disagree about some things will be a topic we cover. But for now, we recognize that there is one unifying object to focus our minds on as we work together for our common Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the good news. Jesus Christ is Lord. Therefore, strive united with one mind for the good news. Now, think with me just for a moment about the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and you are not. Well, one of the most crystal clear things that you're going to note right away is that you have not lived your life like Jesus Christ is Lord. Have you? Before we get to the good news, there is some very clear, very real, very bad news. And it is the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and the fact that He has given us the Gospel, the great news, the good news above all good news is that we can say praise Jesus that He is Lord. Because otherwise it's not such good news. And so Paul's exhortation to the Philippians is that get right with God. And most clearly we find the gospel expressed in chapter 3, verses 2 to 11. But we're going to start in verse 3, which says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. The good news that we have is that opposed to any outward duty or ceremony, Paul's example here is circumcision, the Christian is one who does, is a person who does three things. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Now that Paul goes through an example of what it might look like to put confidence in the flesh. I, I think those were very real temptations in his day. But Paul goes into more detail about what this good news is and what it is meant to do. Starting in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, meaning because of his activities according to the flesh. Whatever gain I had, I counted them as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. The good news begins with the bad. You are a sinner and your best efforts are rubbish. I love that word. In the Greek, the word is skubalon. And skubalon is the word that the people who worked at the dock would have used when they were looking at excrement. I'll let you figure out in your imagination what word that might be best in English. But the point... The good news of this expletive, yes, the Bible has bad words in it. You can now tell your friends that. The good news of this expletive is that we know exactly what Paul thinks about doing whatever we are doing apart from Christ. We can never, apart from Christ, apart from putting our eyes on Him, from recognizing Him as Lord, from trusting His promises, apart from that, we can never do anything in terms of righteousness. And all any righteousness worth having will be a righteousness that comes through trusting the promises of God we have in Christ and acting accordingly. Again, Jesus is Lord. He is even Lord over what I do or don't do to please Him. This is exactly what Paul says in chapter 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. And, praise Jesus for verse 11. The good news involves attaining the resurrection from the dead. Back to life being hard. You all were with me about life being hard, right? Is anybody here looking forward to that day that all of this misery is done? Right? We will certainly spend time on this in the coming weeks. Paul mentions this at least three times in Philippians. But what I want to notice in light of the fact that standing here yesterday, I performed a memorial service from one of our saints. In light of that... I want to note that Paul emphasizes both sides of the good news here. Knowing him and the power of his resurrection, living through the dark valley of the shadow of death that we are living in right now, and the attainment of the resurrection of the dead, which will come one day gloriously. And when I saw Phil breathe his last two days before Christmas. The great thing about that was what I didn't see was right then at that very moment he was hugging his Lord. And he was perfectly happy to do it. I promise you can ask him. Not too soon though. I am very much looking forward to the resurrection of the dead. Not because I imagine myself very high in the totem pole. I think many of you in this room will be closer to the throne than I will. 
But I look forward to the resurrection from the dead because Jesus is Lord and because my Lord promised me that it was going to be really good. I don't know what that means yet, but it's going to be really good. And that really good will make all the striving to be united together down here with those people who rub us the wrong way so much more than worth it. Last theme, Jesus Christ is Lord. Therefore, strive united with one mind for the good news while rejoicing in Jesus. You knew we were coming to this theme, didn't you? Well, of course, Philippians is famous for being the epistle of joy. And rightly so. You cannot understand the lordship of Jesus and the good news that he brings without seeing all the sufferings and oppositions as opportunities to rejoice. In fact, when we don't see our sufferings and oppositions as opportunities to rejoice, it is a clear sign that we need to repent. Joy, heartbreak, toil, sacrifice. These are not mutually exclusive. And many of you in this room know that better than I do. But Paul tells us very clearly that they are not mutually exclusive in verses 14 to 18 of chapter 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice in me." One of the scholars I read takes verse 18 here as the theme verse of the letter. And he says the big idea of the letter is, I rejoice, therefore you rejoice. And clearly Paul has joy in mind when he says we will shine as lights in the world. Why? Because we live in a dark, joyless world. The best thing we can imagine happening is our team wins the Super Bowl. But joy, shining as lights in the world, is absolutely serious business. Because joy is the very best apologetic for the Christian life. If we are to commend Christ to those around us, if we are to recommend people to people that they would be better off trusting God's promises, then doing so with a bad attitude and grumpiness, grumbling and complaining, is a sad commendation. In every passage of Philippians, we find the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and the necessary joyful striving that must come because it is the drum beat of the tune that Paul wants to put in our heads and our hearts. And when we recognize Jesus Christ is Lord, rejoice! as the theme song of our lives, then it will be crystal clear to those who are around us 
that Jesus is worth following as Lord. Because Jesus is Lord, rejoice pressing on with one mind together as you face struggles and oppositions while sharing the good news. So pursue joy in the Lordship of Christ with me between now and Easter. Pursue knowing God better and therefore loving Him and trusting Him more. Read or listen to Philippians each day and experience the Holy Spirit working in you the humility which we didn't get into tonight, the humility for the task before us, living until we attain the resurrection of the dead. Jesus is Lord. Press on with one mind, rejoicing in the good news. Lord Almighty, we thank you for the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as we come to your table right now, I pray that you would Put it not only in our ears, but on our tongue, so that we may rejoice that you are for us and not against us. Men. Did I not get my men?
one of the things I love about taking communion is we were commanded by our Lord Jesus Christ, we were commanded by our Lord to celebrate. I know it's just a little matzos loaf and the one we have in the morning's worse, but <laughs> this is an anticipation of the day when keto diets will never be mentioned ever again. Can I hear an amen? <laughs> so take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. And the cup is the cup of joy, the cup of rejoicing, the cup of saying, yes, Jesus is Lord, and therefore, I don't have to be afraid. Don't be afraid. Take, drink, do this in remembrance of him. <clears throat> do yourself a favor. Get into Philippians. We're going to spend this time between now and Easter uh, going passage by passage. And man, I tell you what, I'm going to have to fight the temptation not to divide up some of those passages into two sermons. But keep me honest, I plan to be done before we hit Easter. And this is going to be a great time of getting into God's Word. But it will be better if you are also daily in Scripture. Now, on my little eye toy that I have, it's 10 minutes for me to listen to the whole thing. Now, Donna says I have it on way too fast. but So maybe you have it on the next speed down, and it takes 12 minutes. Can you think of 12 minutes in your life that you could do you spending listening to Philippians? If you can't, that's between you and Jesus, and praise the Lord. But I encourage you to do that. Lord, bless us, and bless us so that we will be a blessing as we read your word to know you better and therefore love you and trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for coming.